0: Thanks for joining us today on The Pulse by Bernstein, where we bring you insights on the economy, global markets, and all the complexities of wealth management. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson. In our last episode, we had Bernstein's chief economist, Eric Winograd, on the show to give us an update on the state of the economy and his outlook for 2024. Now, while there hasn't been a drastic shift in the state of the economy since that conversation, there has been additional data released and coupled with current events, many investors are asking, what's next? So our guest today is going to offer his perspective on the impact of these events to the financial markets. With us today is Matt Palazzolo, Senior Investment Strategist here at Bernstein, and many of you will recognize his voice as the previous host of this show. Matt, good to have you back.
1: Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Stacey. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Now, on our last episode, we did have Eric Winograd on to discuss the current state of the economy and his outlook at that point in time. Since then, there have been additional data points that have been released and the horrific war between Israel and Hamas broke out. So let's start today with the recent data. And then I would like to ask you to give your assessment of the economic impact of the war. Sure.
1: Yeah. The two major data points that we had over the period of time since you spoke to Eric We had a labor market report for the month of September and a CPI report, i.e. an inflation report also for the month of September. And both those data points were consistent with what I know Eric told you when you got together. The economy in the United States continues to be robust. The jobs market in the United States, we added more jobs than were expected. And inflation, while not terribly hot as we call it in the industry was a little bit higher than than anybody would like to see at this point after the fed has raised rates as much as they have so this all leads to the continuing narrative that the economy in the united states is stronger than anybody would have expected or should i say another way more resilient than anybody would have expected given all the headwinds uh that that we faced over the last 12 to 18 months add on top of that as you mentioned this this terrible war between Israel and Hamas and and the humanitarian tragedy that that is you know we're getting asked the question which i'm sure is on your mind all of your listeners mind about what's the economic impact again a- apart from the humanitarian tragedy the economic impact when we get into any type of conflict we we look at what's the what's the transfer mechanism into the economy, into profitability for companies, for sales for companies. And and for this war, it really is the energy market. It's oil prices, given the, the location in which it is occurring. At this point in time, based on all of our checks and all of our conversations with analysts, there has been no interruption to the production of oil over the last couple of weeks. Um, but we have to watch that closely. I, I think the two major risks that we're watching as it relates to oil over the foreseeable future first of all is whether or not there's on the u.s side any fingering of iran for their role in the lead-up to the war and if there is that that it may lead to a more stricter enforcement of the sanctions that have already been levied against iran in, in the production of oil and then second any disruption to the flow of traffic through the strait of hormuz that would there's a major throughput for energy uh, an oil in particular. And so if that happens, then that that or the, the prior issue around sanctions on Iran and their production may lead to oil prices moving somewhat meaningfully above $100 a barrel.
0: That's helpful. Thank you so much. And as you have said, the economy has been able to really stave off countless headwinds, yet we still are anticipating this recession that might be one of the most widely publicized in the history of recessions. Where is it and where do we stand?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's probably the most widely publicized recession that, that at least to this point, hasn't occurred. Uh, the economy, at least in the United States, has been, as I mentioned a moment ago, very resilient. It's still in the offing. It's still out there. It, it's not with us at the moment. And the reason why really comes down to the U.S. consumer. The unemployment rate in the United States is still comfortably below 4%. So the vast majority of Americans who want to work have a job. Now, they've been getting wage increases. They're working more hours. So, despite all of the inflation that we've had over the last 18 months, the U.S. consumer has been able to um, earn enough in order to offset the cost increases. Couple that with the fact that there were these transfer payments in the wake of COVID that made U.S. savings balances larger than they otherwise would have been. And so consumers are also paring that down or been able to use those uh, savings balances in order to go out and spend. And so that's what's really kept the economy as resilient as it has been over this period of time. Now, all that being said, it is our expectation that the U.S. economy will slow during the balance of 2023 and into 2024. We don't see how it doesn't. There are just too many headwinds. The FOMC raising interest rates as much as they have. That's one major headwind. Those savings balances that I mentioned are pretty much pared down to the the level that they were at pre-COVID. So that's another headwind. We also have student loan repayments that have increased. So there's a number of issues that we think lead to a modest slowdown in the U.S. economy. And we'll be pretty close to what the people in our industry call a recession. Whether or not it ends up technically being one It'll be slow enough that we'll see it and we'll feel it. in many parts of the U.S. economy we will certainly feel that slowdown.
0: Now might be a good time to remind us of that technical definition of a recession. What is that?
1: The non-technical definition is that we have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. But that's not what the National Bureau of Economic Research or the NBER actually uses. They use a whole host of economic metrics that they look at from um, the rise in unemployment rates to consumer spending and a whole host of issues so there's not one single definition that has to be met and either you check that box or you don't check that box so they're looking at a number of economic metrics and if they turn meaningfully downward then that organization determines a start to the recession and then ultimately once it gets a little bit better an end to the recession
0: all right, let's talk about another surprise in September, I'd say, and that was a, a move in interest rates in the long term. Why did that occur?
1: Yeah, so uh, interest rates certainly didn't move up. So, you know, if we were to say at the beginning of the summer, just to have round numbers, the 10 year Treasury rate as a proxy was right around 4%. If I look on my screen right now, we're upwards of 4.8%. So there was a meaningful move higher in interest rates. I'd argue that the vast majority of the reason why is because the economy has just gotten stronger, and that's moved real interest rates higher to reflect the strength in in the economy. And that's despite inflation slowing over that same period of time. So we have seen a backup in, in interest rates. It's our opinion that we're closer to the top during this cycle, particularly given that we do believe that the economy is going to slow. And when it does over the next three, six months or so, that should push money into bonds because there's often a flight to safety. And as all your listeners know, when when bond prices go up, yields tend to fall. So we think right around these levels of 4.8 percent is likely to be close to the top, if not the top.
0: Right now, the FOMC is meeting again November 1st. So where do you think rates are going to go at that meeting and what might make them move?
1: Yeah, I I have conversations with our economists, as you do as well, Eric, and he would say it's a pretty close call for this next meeting. If he has a bias, he's leaning more towards that the FOMC will not make a move, that they will not hike, and that they would push off until the next meeting, which I believe is in December, to collect even more data points on the economy to see whether or not another 25 basis point hike is justified. I think what will give the FOMC some air cover to not hike at this next meeting in November is that interest rates in the marketplace have moved up as much as they have. That tightens financial conditions. And so you could argue easily, and in fact, many Fed governors and Fed presidents have made the same argument within the last 10 days or so, that the market is doing the FOMC's job for them. By moving interest rates up for the 10-year to move up as much as it has, that, that helps to slow down the economy, push up borrowing costs. And so maybe that incremental move is unnecessary because longer-term interest rates have moved up themselves.
0: Got it. So given everything you've told us this far, there's a tremendous amount of cash on the sidelines. Is now a good time to move into bonds?
1: We, we would argue that that it is. And this is, I want to be particular with my word choice here. This is really for longer term investors that have, for whatever reason, accumulated an excess amount of cash in money market funds. To be honest, money market funds provide, at least at this point in time, an attractive yield. If you're in a government money market, you're looking at something north of five and a quarter percent. That being said, that money is taxable. So a taxable investor has to consider the after tax return on that five and a quarter percent. But then for longer term investors where cash or a meaningful amount of cash is not in your long term strategic allocation, we think the yields that you're getting today, four and a half, five, five and a half percent, are particularly attractive. And yes, you have to take on interest rate risk, meaning interest rates might go up and there might be some temporary degradation of price. But it could have worked the opposite way. And in fact, we think it will work the opposite way in that interest rates will start to move down as the economy slows. And so not only will an investor who's moved money out of money market funds and further out to intermediate duration bonds, not only will they collect that attractive yield, but also collect some incremental price appreciation if we're correct that interest rates will move down. So this is all a a tightly fitting narrative that the economy slows, interest rates move down, and there's some nice capital appreciation for those investors who are moving back to their long-term strategic allocation if that's the right place to be.
0: So how does that affect the stock market? What are your expectations over the next year?
1: Yeah. So I guess the other side of the coin that we have to think about for our clients is not only fixed income, but also the equity market. So if we were to assume that interest rates were to come down, that the economy is going to slow, but not going to into a meaningful recession from here over the next 12 months or so, it's our belief that the U.S. stock market, just as a proxy, Will maybe have a bumpier ride for the next handful of months. Nothing terrible, not a meaningful sell-off. We've already had somewhat of a pullback over this period of time, but from here, that the market could appreciate high single digits between you know the fourth quarter of 2023 all the way through till the end of 2024. That assumes a modest amount of earnings growth, not much on valuation change. So PE ratios should be right around where they are today. But given the resilient economy. That's slower from where it is, but lower interest rates. We think the, the market, you know, more towards the back end of that forecast period can appreciate high single digits.
0: So for those investors that do want to get into the market or at least stay in the market, but have some hesitation are worried about risk management, what might they be looking at to invest in?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. First of all, there's an approach which many of our clients utilize, which is just dollar cost averaging. So if we were to assume that the next handful of months are going to be a little bit choppy or range bound, then it would be in their best interest to dollar cost average in, put a little bit in over a period of three or four or six months in order to take advantage. If there is a slight sell-off in the market to be buying lower in addition that you know you have to think about the long-term strategic allocation of that client but you know there are opportunities and different strategies where you can have equity market exposure but some protection when and if there is some volatility in the market whether that be a hedged equity product or or something as some type of alternative if it's appropriate for that client something that does provide less volatility but still some upside participation if by the end of that forecast period we're right and the markets are up high single digits.
0: Okay, so we've talked about the bond side of the portfolio, the stock side of the portfolio. You know, for those investors that can take on some illiquidity, what opportunities are out there today?
1: Yeah. So we've been an advocate of alternative investments. You noted illiquidity. So illiquid alternative investments beyond just publicly traded stocks and bonds for for quite some time. We think they add diversification to stocks and bonds, and in some cases, incremental return above and beyond what you can achieve just through a plain vanilla stock and bond portfolio. At times when you have dislocation or opportunities because of some distress, then those returns can be higher, Again, there's an illiquidity trade-off that investor has to be willing to take on at that point in time. At the moment, commercial real estate is one of those areas that we think is certainly in the crosshairs and, and concerns for many investors given the the rise in interest rates and the challenges certainly for the office market. But we've been advocating for that sector for um, some time now, given the fact that office is only 15% of overall commercial real estate and prices are down somewhat meaningfully, 15 to 20%, depending on the, the region and depending on the sector. And for an investor to perhaps lend into that opportunity, provide liquidity where there has been a drying up of liquidity, then then we think the return should be good for the foreseeable future. Same thing for loans to private corporations or sometimes called private credit. That's an area that we've recognized given the stresses on the small bank or regional bank system that there's been a lack of liquidity into the areas that traditionally borrowed from the banks. And so at points in time like this, we want to step into that void, be lenders into that illiquidity, and hopefully you're likely to get higher returns than you otherwise would in normal
0: times. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, It was great to have you back and uh, thanks for letting me turn the mic on you.
1: Thanks a lot, Stacey. Good to be with you.
0: That's all for this week on The Pulse. Thanks again for listening, and please remember to like, share, and subscribe. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so don't forget to tune in.